returning guest, Mr. Nat Segaloff, the film historian and author who has written several great books, I should say, about uh, figures in American film, and uh, one of which we're going to be talking about today, Arthur Penn. He's written books on the screenwriter Sterling Siliphant, and he's written books on the filmmaker Arthur Penn, as I said, that we're going to be talking about today uh, as we celebrate the 40th anniversary of Four Friends, which is a film that of Arthur Penn's that no one seems to be talking about. It doesn't seem to be in the conversation these days, and so we can hopefully rectify that. Uh, other books that uh, Mr. Sakhaloff has written are A Lit Fuse, which is a biography of Harlan Ellison, Sterling Siliphant, The Fingers of God, I think I just mentioned that, Final Cuts, the last films of 50 great directors, Guarding Gable, and Mr. Houston, Mr. North, which is a look at the making of uh, John Houston's final film, The Dead. So uh, we're going to get on with it and talk about Four Friends here. And this is an interesting film in that uh, Arthur Penn, at this point, you know, obviously he had made his mark with Bonnie and Clyde and Little Big Man and um, Night Moves preceding this film and The Miracle Worker. Uh, but this was at a time in his career when he was uh, uh, kind of in need of a hit, I guess you would say. Uh, 1976 was the it had been a five-year gap since he had made a film. He was riding high off the success of Night Moves, and then he the next year directed The Missouri Breaks, which was not really a huge success in spite of the uh, pedigree of its cast. And so Four Friends was his attempt at to uh, maybe... Uh, get back on track, and like I said, it was somewhat met with indifference, so we'll talk, get you to talk to us a little bit about the uh, events that led his involvement with Four Friends. We'll also mention that it was uh, the screenwriter of the film, Steve Tesich, had won an Oscar the preceding year for Breaking Away, which was an autobiographical look at his growing up in uh, Indiana, and so this was, uh, he had his pick of the um, of the litter. Everybody wanted to be in the Steve Tesich business after he had won the Oscar for Breaking Away, and so this was his next project, and this was an autobiographical look at his uh, college years, I guess you would say, in the tumultuous 60s. So we'll we'll get you to tell us a little bit about what led to Arthur Penn's involvement in this project. Well, hello, first of all, Adam. It's good talking to you again. <laughs> always good talking with you, too. You're always so knowledgeable, and we always ha enjoy having you on and hearing your stories. And uh, the, I figured you'd be the great person to have to talk about Four Friends, uh, the, the ideal person, I should say. So there we go. Well, not to take a wind out of too many sails, but Four Friends is probably my least favorite Arthur Penn film. I'm not a big fan of it. But I think as we talk about it, we'll be able to understand why it rubs people, some people the wrong mm -hmm. way and rubs many more people the right way because there's so much in there. Uh, about society and about characters that we all know, that it's, it's a very rich film, and it's easy to take it personally, which I certainly did. Oh, yes, 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 yes. It, it, and it was a little bit of a divisive film. I know not everybody warmed to it. Uh, there, there were some, some mixed reviews at the time. Uh, like I said, I recall, I believe, Roger Ebert put it on his top ten of the year list. I know Leonard Maltin was pretty... Uh, he was pretty positive about it. I think Time Magazine, I think I have the quote here, an ambitious and moving, picturesque panorama of life in the turbulent 1960s. 
So that was Time Magazine's quote. So, but anyway, I I, I was just curious. Uh, I I think it's a little even to be honest, in spite of the fact that we're we're doing this show, it's a curio for me. But I think it starts out uh, a little bit uh, co- in a slight comic vein almost, and then turns really deadly serious before it's over with. <laughs> it's it, it kind of uh, is. Um, a little on the uneven side, but it, it has a strong finish, as they say, in my opinion. So, I'll, But I'll get you to tell uh, us a little bit about what led to his being involved with it. It's a very emotional film in a lot of ways, and certainly for both Steve Tessich and Arthur Penn, because they shared a kind of an immigrant experience, and I think that's, in fact, I know that's what drew Arthur to the film, mm-hmm. because he saw in Steve Tessich, uh, who came from Yugoslavia, and that's what the family in the film is, uh, very close to Arthur, who came, his parents came from Lithuania, and they, he's had many of the same markers and some of the same feelings, and I know that's what made it. Now, I usually, in, in my book, I point out something which screenwriters talk about a lot, and that is there's a difference between the plot and the subplot of a film. The plot is what happens in the story, and the subplot is what the film is really about. I think the plot of Four Friends is very much at odds with the subplot. The plot is about how three guys and a woman go through about 1961 to 1969 and how America changes with them. And they Danilo's family, the Greg Watson character. What the film was about is, of course, the way the American age during the 1960s and how it became more political and how it became socially very different. And the hard thing that Tessich had to do, and I don't think he did it, was finding a human story that would allow him to articulate all of the things that he wanted to say politically. And that's where I find the film very much at odds. You know, there's a difference between, say, picaresque and episodic. Picaresque is if it works to have a lot of short scenes. Episodic is if it doesn't work to have a lot of short scenes. Four Friends is episodic. If you compare it with Arthur's 1970 film, Little Big Man, which is picaresque. It covers you know, practically 121 years, which is as old as the protagonist Jack Crabb is. That film holds together because we're watching a central character, and we're watching him grow, and he goes back and forth, and we're watching history. And it does come together and work magnificently by the end. Four Friends is kind of torn by a lot of side stories that don't seem to relate to the central DNA of the film, which is the immigrant experience and how somebody who comes from a culture adapts to a different culture. And that's what Craig Wasson, as the character of Danilo, has to do in Four Friends. Yeah, that's an excellent uh, summation of it, I would say. And I think you're really on to something there. Like I said, I know that I respond personally uh, most strongly during the final section of the film. Uh, The first half of the film is uh, the first time I was seeing it, I I, uh, was a little, uh, was finding hard to to connect with it. But uh, yes, uh, that's, uh, I think you've summed it up quite well. So um, so anyway, uh, as I said, Arthur Penn was in need of a hit at this point, I would say, uh, with, after the somewhat, uh, I guess, uh, well, it was disappointing to him, the failure of uh, the Missouri Breaks with uh, Marlon. Yeah, Missouri Breaks was a, a disaster commercially, but he still pulled it off. Remember, the Directors Guild was about to go on strike, mm-hmm. and they couldn't extend the shoot, and they couldn't, they had to shoot it now. And so he went to Montana, which is where he had done locations scouting for Little Big Man. Mm-hmm. He found all the locations right away, and he got Nicholson and Brando and everybody else together. And I think with a pretty loose script um, by uh, Tom, whatever his name, Tom McGuane, um, who I don't think really did very good uh, screenwriting at all, uh, um, 
they managed to make it work, made the scenes play because of Brando and Nicholson. But in, in fact, when McGuane turned in the script, there were no scenes between the two stars. So I think you would have a little bit of a problem there. And Arthur was the one who recognized that right away and, and had a couple of scenes put in. So, um, yeah, he was was coming off of that, which was a disappointment financially. But remember, he was also directing plays. He was running the actor's studio. He was consulting. He was doing all kinds of things. But he didn't make another film until Four Friends. And that struck him very personally because of the, the nature of the, of the uh, subplot. I, I think, and I'm sorry to interrupt probably monopolizing this, I may, I may give a paragraph here for the listeners who haven't become aware of the film or haven't seen it. It's a kind of a synopsis. Um, Four Friends follows young Danilo Prozor, played as, as a grown-up by Craig Wasson, who arrives in East Chicago, Indiana, from Yugoslavia in the mid-1950s with his mother. His father has sent them on ahead, and so when he meets his father, he's 12 years old and has no idea who this man is, this man who has worked, struggled to bring his family over, but has grown distant from them. He's the father trying to establish a life for them. By high school, Danilo has formed close friendships with David, Tom and the Free Spirit Georgia, that is David Huddleston, uh, Jim Metzler, Metzler and um, Jody Phelan, and Georgia appeals to them all as a life force, and this is where my problems start. The story takes all of them through the next turbulent decade of political, social, and moral change, and ends with Danilo and his father reconciling, not because the parent has changed so much, but because the son has. Yeah, that's uh, that's good that you did that. I uh, I meant to do that earlier, and it, that we just kind of jumped into our conversation there. So thank you for uh, correcting that oversight. Uh, yes, now I was interested in the uh, the casting of this film. Um, I know since it was such a personal project of Steve Tesich's, and he was, as I said, riding high after his success with Breaking Away. Um, was it Arthur Penn's final say on the casting, or did they kind of work together on that, or uh, I was just curious. Uh, I'm sure Craig, I, I'm sure um, Tessie has some input, for, but for an Arthur Penn film, he's pretty good at casting. By the way, I aired before, it was Michael Huddleston, not David Huddleston, uh, and Jim Metzler, and not Metzler. Jim Metzler is a, uh, a brilliant sound recordist and personality that I happen to know. If anybody's trying to transcribe this, good luck. <laughs> uh, but Greg Wasson was the, the flavor of the, I think he was either about to or had just done Brian De Palma's Body Double. Yeah, it was a couple and years later, made, I think. Yeah. He's done Ghost Story at the okay. time, yeah, I think. That's the one. Yeah, That's yeah. the one. It was riding high. Right. But none of these can actually open a picture, as they right, say. The sure. reason it got made was because Arthur Penn wanted to make it. And from an independent company, it was, it was about to happen. Um, I think Greg Watson does a remarkable job in a very underwritten character who's an observer of all this that goes on, and he still has to establish himself as a character. Also, he plays a character who's somewhere to the left politically, and as I understand it, Craig Watson is somewhere to the right politically. So it's a, a really dedicated job he did pulling this off. Um, Jim Metzler, of course, had been in, I think, uh, what was it, a Disney picture with uh, Matt Dillon. I may be wrong about that. I'm trying to remember. I think he also was in, uh, well, forget it. I'm, I, I should have done my research no, on that. Okay. These are all very serviceable actors. The one who rubbed me the wrong way is Jody Thielen, uh -huh. who... And she's had a remarkable career since then, so I don't think anything I say is going to hurt her. She has the vocal delivery of a first-year drama student and fancies herself like Liza Minnelli in Cabaret as being a life force, when in fact she's more like um, Jill Hayworth in I Am a Camera. That is, she thinks she's a life force, but she's not. 
what it really is a story about is about three guys who were infatuated with a cock teaser for 10 years. And I think that's a problem, because unless she brings the scenes alive that she's in, it doesn't work. She thinks she's Isadora Duncan, and she doesn't have any sense of what reality is. But she's not at all charming. She just goes on and on, and I think that's a, it's, it's very hard to react against somebody who's, who's basically full of it, or full of herself. That having been said, the other stuff is magnificent. The relationship with the parents, the blue-collar work, the uh, relationship with the roommate, um, who is uh, uh, Reed Burney, who is um, a, a physically challenged fellow who's very sick, and, and uh, Danilo, Craig Watson, is his roommate, and there's nothing ever mentioned of his, his disability except they both deal with it. It's a very accepting film. And that, of course, becomes one of the many subplots. So the film goes all over the place over the course of nine or ten years. And I think it's the political content and the social content that trumps the personal content. Yeah, that's, again, that is an excellent point. And that's an excellent point about uh, Jody Phelan's character as well. I, uh, I totally agree. And I think that is part of the problem, I think, in the early going of the film, uh, that it is a little bit hard to uh, accept her, I guess, you know, as 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 written or as act, as acted um, by her. I'm not sure, you know, maybe a combination of both. But like I said, the the film becomes more engrossing as it goes on. I I think, um, and uh, as you, I'm glad you mentioned too the um, the uh, the subplot about the uh, his his handicapped friend. And that is, uh, it is sensitively handled, as you say. So yes, that's uh, that's a very um, uh, that's one of the bright spots in the film that uh, I certainly and I had forgotten about it until I just recently uh, watched it again a couple of months ago, and I had totally forgotten about that character and, and uh, that he was one of the the things that that really drew me to it. Um, and he's not introduced, I think, until about an hour into the film or something like that. Uh, Yes, it, it's a very weird structure. It is because yes. it covers this as nine or ten years, and things just sort of happen all of a sudden. Well, the, these actors are clearly in their twenties, and it begins when they're in high school. Yes, it just it doesn't work. Um, also, what's what's very strange about it is the Craig Watson character stands up when there's a school assembly of military recruiters and steel executives trying to you know hire kids. So this is like career day, and all of a sudden, out of absolutely nowhere, he stands up and starts doing. Uh, activist, you know, all power to the people, you're a military-industrial complex. I mean, this is a fellow who was raised conservative, who, who plays a, a recorder, and all of a sudden he's uh, standing up and trying to lead a class riot against the military-industrial complex in what is essentially 1961, which is before consciousness was raised to that level. Yeah, that's, that is true. Yeah, that was before the... Uh the Cuban Missile Crisis and then the escalation of the war in Vietnam. So yes, yes, yes. Good point. Good point. Um, yeah, that's uh, um, Jim Metzler. I was going to go back to that. Yeah, he was in Tex. That's the. It came to me as as you were speaking. That's, yeah, that's the one. Thank you. <laughs> it just came to me. Uh, yeah, and that was a Disney film. Uh, so the production of the film. Uh, do you have any uh, anecdotes about the production, the nuts and bolts of uh, when it was shot, and um, any any info on that, just by chance? I wish I could offer something more in more detail, but Arthur and I didn't discuss it a whole lot. We we became very, very close in the course of my writing the book uh -huh. on him, but this is one of the films we sort of agreed to disagree on. 
Um, he, he did say, in retrospect, and I'm quoting him now, it was a film about displaced adolescents and a kid who was an immigrant to the United States and his ability to function with his father. In that sense, there are a lot of personal details that correlate with my own life. More than that, I think, well, I don't know what I think I was going to say. I think that one of the things about the film is that there is inherent in it a certain forgiveness, and I sense that's my subterranean connection to it. Some way we finally forgive each other and find a way to move on. And uh, that's very, very true. The, and here come a lot of spoilers. The son sort of forgives the father, as Arthur finally forgave his father. Arthur was raised in terms which other people have called Dickensian. He and his brother Irving were separated. They were raised by different parents. They were shuttled back and forth. They were farmed out to other people to raise. And finally, at the very end of their father's life, whose name was uh, Gregory Penn, um, Irving and Arthur kind of looked at each other and said, you know, I, I really don't think I knew that man very well. And when their mother died, they said, I don't really think I liked her very much. Wow. So these were two kids who were struggling on their own and managed to become two of the foremost artists of their generation. And yet the parents whom they wanted to love were very difficult to love. Uh, and certainly the, the harsh portrayal uh, in, in uh, Four Friends of the father, whose name I'm looking up now, mm -hmm. Um, is Miklos Simon, Miklos Simon. Right. Um, he, he doesn't even smile until the very end of the film. That's he's correct, a yes. brutal, brutal man. But you see, he's burning at the same time because he doesn't understand what's happening. Yeah, that's a, that that's the the parallels are very uh, interesting for sure. I would say, yeah, it's um, so so he was uh, satisfied with the film. He he uh, still was proud of it. I'm assuming uh, and and. Um, was it? Uh, um, yes. Yes. Yeah, I was assuming that that he was. Uh, he was very warmly received in Europe. Uh huh. I, Arthur's always been very popular in Europe. He, yeah, very much. It's called George's Friends overseas. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, again, he, it's a personal. I mean, how many people get to make a personal film these days, especially in the uh, in the eighties and nineties? But he was able to pull it off, uh, and it, it was good for him. You know, it helped him clear his head after the ennui that followed Night Moves, and. Uh, in having been fired off of the train and all kinds of things that happened in a turbulent career. And after this, he went out to make a film called Target with Matt Dillon and Gene Hackman, right. which is about as silly an action picture as you can imagine. But boy, it's fun to watch. And he spent his time. It's the only film he ever shot out of the country. He shot it in Europe. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, again, about a family who is destroyed from without and has to pull itself together again. So, you know, this man who had a shattered family managed to make a bunch of films about families. Yeah, that that is interesting. that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, the parallels are uh, are are, uh, are are quite uh, curious. Yeah. So, like I said, the critical reception was pretty good. Um, I think part of the problem with this film may have been the fact that it was uh, a Filmways um, released by the uh, distributor Filmways, and I think they were under the. Um, I think it was the following year they were sold, or maybe that year they were sold, but they had some successes. With Dress to Kill, and uh, well, they had a failure uh, with um, Blowout, Brian De Palma's Blowout. They had, uh, they were the studio behind that one, and then this one did not do very well either. And so I think they uh, they folded. Uh, Orion bought them out, I believe, yeah, the following it's... year, and so that yeah. may have. I'm wondering how much of that played into the film's failure. The fact that uh, Filmways may have been under some some financial 
problems of some sort because I know that uh, that uh, Blowout was an eight million dollar film that I don't even know that it grossed a million maybe something like that it's well revered these days but back then didn't do so well so um, so they may, may have yeah. may have been hurting from that so. You work on cash flow a lot if you're in the production and distribution business, and if the film you have in release doesn't pay off the bills from the previous film, especially the marketing bills, you're in big trouble. Also, exhibitors tend to run frightened from any film company that can't produce another movie, not only for another movie, but a distributor who can't pay back the advertising revenues that the exhibitor has to spend is pretty much abandoned, and that's a shame. And you're right about Blowout. It's absolutely one of the best movies, A, ever made, that the Palma ever made, and it took people 20 years to realize that. Yes, sadly so. And uh, I was a fan of it right from the beginning, but uh, that's a that's a whole other story. Yeah. Uh, but... I know. Well, you yeah, haven't helped those who have vision. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, but nevertheless, yeah, Filmways was the distributor, and I think they were hurting from uh, the, the the failure of Blowout, and I think that may have uh, maybe they had some trouble. Uh, you know, uh, promoting the film or uh, the advertising budgets. Who who knows? But um, anyway, this you, you never, you know, it's it's the sort of thing where there are no real headliners in the film, and a good film needs stars. And Arthur had started to slip in terms of the Bonnie and Clyde reputation because the film critics who recognized Bonnie and Clyde had kind of moved on or gotten older by, by the time of of uh, Four Friends. There's so many different things that come into play. A good it should work, but it was ignored, and that's the best we can say. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. Um, so, the, and the film has had an even uh, worse. Um, uh, it's it's even had worse luck, I think, on home video. It was released on VHS tape in the '80s, and then uh, briefly on DVD by MGM. And that that DVD has gone out of print. It was out of print a long time ago, and there were. Uh, in fact, I, I'm film. I'm friends with a uh, film professor who lives near me, and he's a he's a fan of this film. And he was asking if I had a copy of it to spare because he just could not find one because it was out of print. And I said, Well, of course, <laughs> I've got it in my library, and as I do, I had bought it when it was uh, available. But yeah, I uh, I'm wondering if it will ever get the uh, the Blu-ray treatment for us handful of cinephiles who still buy physical well, media. Well, depends who owns it, you know. Yeah, I think it's MGM. Yeah, well, the Orion films were taken over. Yeah, the Orion, the Orion films were bought by MGM, and MGM can't do shit right now except release James Bond movies, so I don't know if they have the wherewithal. They may go out to other places, you know. There are some companies like Universal that doesn't do their own home video anymore. They go through Kino Lorber. So perhaps uh, MGM will find a way to job out their titles and get them done by somebody who actually wants to uh, give it a good a good treatment. Yeah, and... Uh, my, my DVD is still totally yeah, um, MGM I think has a deal with Kino Lorber. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So they they uh, they've been doing some of their. In fact, yeah, I know they they because they're doing the 4K on the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978, which is the United Artist title. So that's coming right. out in November. So yeah, they're uh, they're handling and and they just did the uh, 4K of um, uh, Silence Silence of the Lambs, and that's an Orion title. So yeah, uh, so yeah, that's uh, that, that's very good because. Kino Lorber has really stepped up and done terrific work. Yeah, it's pretty amazing some of the stuff they they are doing now. I, I'm constantly amazed at some of the some of the films that that they're putting out there, and I wonder who besides myself is uh, is excited about some of these titles. But I don't care. I guess I'm selfish in that matter because I <laughs> when I see these titles like uh, Bill Conti's. Um, 
uh, Slow Dancing in the Big City, which is a sentimental favorite. Not saying it's right. a great film, but it's coming out in November, and I'm thinking, boy, they're they're speaking my language with those sorts of things. So it's. <laughs> I, I like that film. I like Slow Dancing. I like Paul Sorvino a lot. Yeah. And when I told John Avildsen I liked the film, he said, "You're the only one who likes it." <laughs> so now we have. Well, it, 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 it teaches you something. It's a wonderful film about trying for a dream, and you're not good enough. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, I kind of have to defend it to some people, but it's okay. It's okay. I'm I'm cool with that. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. it uh, it's coming out uh, from Kino in November. It just got the press release earlier today, so I'm excited. I uh, so yeah, they're doing they are doing some great work. Now this brings us to uh, one other thing we could we could talk about a little bit is is the uh, the difference in film climate, you know, uh, the types of films that were getting made in 1981. Here we are 40 years later. Uh, Four Friends, obviously a very personal film, but those kind of films are not getting made anymore. And uh, I was just curious your opinions on whether you think um, a lot of people are, there are a lot of cries from the uh, from the cinephiles that the movie business is dead. And, uh, and is it really? I don't know, but it, it doesn't look good, these uh, Films like this just don't get financed anymore, and they haven't for a long time. And so I was just uh, curious about your opinions on that. Well, here's the, here's the analogy. Think of your favorite little restaurant. Think of your favorite little restaurant in your hometown. And you go there once or twice a year, and you go there one day, and it's closed. And you say, how could it close? And then you realize you only went there once or twice a year. If you'd gone there every week, it would still be open. I think the same thing can be said about these so-called personal films. If audiences supported them, then they would keep making them. But the problem is that they appeal to a more mature group, the over-40 filmgoers. And the over-40 filmgoers stay home watching them on television. They don't go to theaters because who wants to be in a theater where you pay $6 for a popcorn, you have kids talking next to you, and you hear the Star Wars film coming from the next auditorium. So it's the audiences who are not attracted to the films because the film-watching environment is not as fun as it was when you were younger. Also, they say certain films do work better on TV. Four Friends would be nice on television because you can watch it at your leisure. It isn't as spectacular, but that's because the finances of the film have changed. When Four Friends was made, I'm sure it didn't cost any more than about 10 or $12 million and should have been able to be recouped. But now you can't even... The catering costs more than $10 million on a film. The, the industry has conglomeratized, has figured out what they can sell, especially what they can sell internationally, how they can cut their losses, and it's now manufacturing. You know, you don't find Detroit making a car for 14 people. You find them making a car for 140 million people. And the same thing with Hollywood. The industry now is so corporate, it's so complex, and so market-driven that they can't afford to do these small films. That's why you do them for television, which actually is quite saying something now. That's why people make passion movies. It's the best they can do. And then getting them out to people is tough, too, because you can still, you know, you cost as much to buy an ad for a small film as it does to buy an ad for a large film. And these small films simply return less at the box office. And you have to deal with uh, passions versus the politics of, of corporate movie making. It, it, it's changed, you know. I think of May and November, but December is all that you'll get. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. And those films, unfortunately, they pile them on all at one time. And so... When you're a serious film buff, you are really struggling to keep up with all of the onslaught of the films that are targeted for Oscar season when the other nine months of the year you're barely getting anything for an, uh, a mature thinking adult. 
And so yeah. that's <laughs> there are a lot of really good films out there. There's a, a film critic in England named Mark Kermode, who is a good friend of mine, uh -huh. and he's always reviewing movies that I've never even heard of. And he's seeing them once, maybe seeing them twice, and championing them. I doubt if any of them ever come over here, and yet they're in English. We're talking about movies that are made, you know, still about 250 movies made every year, but I doubt if more than 100 really get seen. They're out there. They're out there, but no one knows where they are or can find a theater to play them, so they go to alternative media. It's very, very hard to get your film seen. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think part of it, too, is there's just no national conversation about film anymore. Uh, it used to be, you know, we, weren't, we, all, we all weren't in our own little bubbles as we are now. And I think everybody's yeah. in their own little bubble. I, I, I guess I'm guilty of it, too, because I'm still a physical media guy. So I'm not watching the latest television show. I'm not watching the latest uh, whatever's trendy. Uh, I'm watching whatever Blu-ray releases may have come out this month that I'm going to be reviewing. Uh, and so I guess I'm kind of guilty of that as well. So I'm, I'm living in my own little universe. And so I think that's what everybody is doing collectively. And I think... Um, the conversation about film is not what it used to be, whereas we all st stood around and, at the figurative water cooler and talked about um, uh, whatever was playing in the theater over the weekend. You know, it was an, it was a um, a talking point that we don't have anymore, and I think that's really sad that that's mm -hmm. gone. I know that uh, nothing lasts forever and things pass, and uh, but I just don't think that it's uh, you know the movies now have reached a point where it's it's all about making, to me, I see it as making uh, the, the biggest amount of money as fast as possible. And um, the, But the question is, how many of these films are going to have the lasting power of some of the things, say, that uh, are in Arthur Penn's resume, like Little Big Man or, or uh, Bonnie and Clyde? Are we going to be talking about these right. films 50, 60 years on? And the answer to that question is, uh, I don't see it happening. I don't see us talking about Justice League, Zack Snyder's cut of the Justice League, say, uh, in 2070. I don't see that happening. Uh, I, maybe I'll be proven wrong, but... <laughs> no, I think you're right. And it, it's... And, and, and Zack Snyder's no fool. I mean, but there are... Look, the, the craft of filmmaking today is as polished as it's ever been. Sure. There are people who yeah. truly know what they're doing. Uh, it's just the subjects have to relate to so many people because you, you can't afford to go for a select audience anymore. And when you're making movies that have to be seen by 100 million people or be designed to be seen by 100 million people, you can't afford to be very specific. You wind up using stereotypes, you wind up using action, and you wind up using thoughts which are not exactly mature. There's a, a friend of mine who got his script rejected, and the producer rejected it by saying, your characters are too complex for a budget this big. And he wasn't making a joke. So we're dealing with stereotypes in our personal life and certainly in our, our entertainment life. It just You can't afford to be too specific. It, it's a problem. It means we're not willing to relate to people who are different either. Yeah, that's true. It's all other discussion. Yes, I think I'll open the oven now and crawl in. I think it's a very depressing part of the discussion now. <laughs> I know. I, I hate it, it's, uh, but it, I think it ties into what we're, uh, what we're speaking of. I, uh, you know, it's... Um, it's, it's something to think about. Well, we'll talk about real quickly before we uh, wrap this thing up. We'll talk about the, the later careers, what happened to Steve Fitch and Arthur Penn after Four Friends, and we can talk about that just a bit. Of course, uh, Arthur Penn went on to some successes. Uh, Dead of Winter was fairly successful, I think, in 1987, a solid thriller, I would say, with Roddy McDowell. 
and Mary Steenburgen, and um, and then he did some TV movies. He did uh, his final theatrical film, of course, Pin and Teller Get Killed, which uh, yes, which is one of my favorites. I, I think, unlike Slow Dancing in the Big City, I'm one of the minority. <laughs> but uh, Ben and Teller Get Killed was, I think, 96. And he um, did some more stuff with the actor's studio. He tried to get a few projects together. But his son, Matthew Penn, who is a director, uh-huh. among other things, he was directing and then was a showrunner on Law and Order. So, you know, he's quite a good guy. Said that they went to a, a studio sneak of a film, I guess it was in New York, Arthur and Matthew And the publicist for the film, it was a test screening, Ask the audience, look, we don't know how to do this film. Give us some suggestions. Do you want the characters to be more likable? Shall we reshoot? Shall we do this or that? He was basically leaving it up to the audience to tell them how to fix their movie. And Arthur turned to Matt with that smile, as Matt described it, Arthur has when he knew things were getting bad. He said, well, that's it for me. And he never made another movie. Wow. When you turn over the movie to the audience... Um, and I, I saw that happen. I went to a screening of, of Health, the Robert Altman oh, film yeah. about a health spa. And uh, the, the publicist, who was a dear friend of mine, actually said to the audience, look, we don't know how to sell this film. If anybody has any ideas, please let us know. I mean, this is a studio film from 20th Century Fox, for Christ's sake. <laughs> they have marketing people who are paid six figures a year, and they couldn't figure out how to sell their own movie. Yeah. So, you know, when you turn it over to the audience, you're, you're talking about the end of civilization. Yeah, that's a good point, yes. And uh, that did sit on the shelf for quite a while, from what I recall, uh, health. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's it's that's something when you think of it in those terms. Yeah, um, so Arthur Penn lived a pretty uh, fairly long life, but unfortunately he was 88, of course, when he passed in 2010. Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't the case with Steve Tessich. Uh, who died. No, he, he died young, unfortunately, after writing Eleni, which was also a great film. Uh, with Kate Nelligan, right. and um, yeah, he, he passed away. He didn't live very long or work very long. I think his first credit is 1973, and his last was 85. And his stuff in the middle of it was, you know, The World According to Garp, American Flyers, Breaking Away. I mean, he he, he was, you know, pretty good shakes there as a, as a fine, fine writer. Oh, yeah, and also Eyewitness with uh, oh, yes. Sigourney Weaver is another uh, film, and uh, William right. Hurt. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a, quite a fan of The World According to Garp. I love the novel, but I think his adaptation of the novel, it was an, almost an unfilmable, um, mm-hmm. it was an almost an unfilmable uh, book, they said. And yet, the book is quite different from the film and vice versa, but I think the film is so complimentary. Uh, well, I, sh- I should say they complement each other is what I should say. Because yeah, I think uh, if you've read the book, as I have multiple times, I think the book is incredibly profound and well-written. And the film is also rich, but in a different way. And so uh, I think they do. Uh, he he did a he pulled off a really neat trick, of course aided immeasurably by George Roy Hill's direction. a fantastic uh, job he did there with that. So anyway, and as you said, a couple of American flyers, and yeah, he did some uh, some things. I think he continued to write plays, but he died of a, a heart attack. While on vacation with his family, uh, he was in his 50s, I believe. So, yeah, it was really sad. Sad. Um, I would have liked to have seen more work from him film-wise, but it just wasn't wasn't to be. But um, but anyway, uh, this has been a lot of fun talking about uh, Four Friends and, and kind of uh, doing a segue off in, uh, to the uh, state of film today as a, compared to what it was 40 years ago, which is uh, quite the difference, uh, <laughs> to say the I least. Know. 
And God, I, I, I wish I'd, I'd saved more stuff. I'd have lots of things to sell at souvenir shops today. <laughs> I know, I know. It was, um, yeah. When you when you uh, look back uh, on friend, uh, films like this, and I'm amazed at um, the movies that people do remember from 1981 are the are the obvious choices like Superman 2 and Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, Time Bandits and some of those are fine but uh, I think there are a lot of the dramas that kind of get forgotten from that year and this was one of them and Pennies from Heaven is another one on my list and Ragtime uh, fans of those as well and all those released 40 years ago and I think are kind of and, and of course Blowout we've already talked about that so all those from yeah. 40 years ago and just uh you know, they kind of get lost in the shuffle, uh, and so... Um, 40 years, <laughs> 40, sorry, 40 years, it's just, it's impossible to think of a movie that was in color that I just remember seeing is 40 years old. You know, this, old movies are supposed to be in black and white with scratches, <laughs> but this, these, are all, these are all new ones. I know, and think about uh, 1981, when we were thinking about movies made 40 years before, we're thinking 1941, and that's a world of difference. Well, that was Citizen uh, Kane. You know, right, yeah. Forty years before that was said. I mean, that you know has film progressed since Citizen Kane. Right, exactly. So that's uh, yeah. that's that's a whole other ball of wax, as they say. So anyway, well, yeah, this has been great. I appreciate you always, as always, coming on to the uh, to the show to talk to us about uh, this film, and uh, we your your uh, conversations are always informative. And uh, you want to? Uh, is there anything you want to talk about? New projects you're working on, or uh, any of the? Uh, yes, I'll be very brief about sure. this. Um, the uh, the book that was just published is from Bear Manor Media, but you can also get it from Amazon and other fine booksellers. It's called Big Bad John, mm -hmm. the John Milius Interviews, and it's a collection of 47 years' worth of interviews and encounters I've had with the great John Milius, who wrote Apocalypse Now, who made the movies Red Dawn and Big Wednesday, and, and uh, it's just lots of fun. John, who's ordinarily full of bluster, is quite profound and not at all blustery in this, and it we're close friends, and it goes back a long way. So Big Bad John, the John Milius interviews. Also, I'm still pushing a, a soon-to-be-printed second edition of A Lit Fuse, The Provocative Life of Harlan Ellison. I go around taking thorns out of people's paws, like John or like Harlan Ellison or William Friedkin. Um, and uh, this is one of those cases where uh, we have a wonderful, I think, it was nominated for several awards, biography of a man who scared the hell out of people but was one of the greatest writers of speculative fiction, sometimes called science fiction, we ever know. And that's a lit fuse. And that's available from the publisher, Nesfa Press, but also through Amazon. And uh, the one I'm looking forward to for next year, we just are in the process of finishing it. It's called The Mazursky Method, The Paul Mazursky Interviews. It's a collection of my interviews with Paul Mazursky. Uh, which really trace his whole career, and they're funny, and they're touching, and they're maddening, and they they really hit all the bases. And it's done with the uh, the help of his his uh, family, which I think gives it a certain authority. So we have a lot of personal things that are in there too. So the Mazursky method will be coming out sometime next year. And I'm working on a couple of other things that I can't really talk about on the record. But uh, you know, one of the things about COVID is when you can't go out, you fire up the computer and do what you can. And uh, by gosh, that's what I did. Absolutely, yeah. That's uh, now you're you're doing it the right way, yeah. Because we uh, we love your books and uh, just urge you to keep going on. And I 
Uh, that was a terrible oversight because I had uh, Big Bad John listed here, and I just looked right over it and mentioned some of the older titles. So I, uh, that was a terrible oversight, when, and my apologies, but I'm glad you rectified that. So, uh, yes. Well, then mention it five times in future shows, and I'll let you off the book. <laughs> yeah, and I'm looking at the, the Mazursky book sounds fantastic. I'm a huge, huge fan. Um, I'm hoping, you know, I think Criterion ink to deal with them right before Disney bought them out, so they were able to put out an unmarried woman on Blu-ray last year, and thankfully that happened. But um, and then of course Bob and Carol Ted and Bob Carol Ted and Alice that yeah, that came out uh, by Twilight Time put that out two or three years ago, but no Harry and Tonto on Blu-ray unfortunately. There's a Japanese Blu-ray, but I think that's long gone. But since now that Disney has taken over 20th yeah. Century Fox, all of his Fox films are kind of are kind of lost. Yeah, that, there's a whole story there about how he got along so well with Alan Ladd Jr. at Fox. And, and it's a shame what Disney is doing there. Well, but there's a great story there. Of course, Mazursky was one of the most wonderful directors ever, and there's a lot to talk about in his film, so I think we'll have a, a field day when that comes out sometime next year. If I can beg my way back onto your show, I'd love to. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm sure we can find a, a Mazursky film that's... Uh... Actually, I think Bloom and Love's coming up with an anniversary, but you know, we may be a little early on that, but we can jump in and talk about it because that's one of my favorites. So we can do that. All right. Well, we can talk about his oeuvre too. We haven't got to wait for anniversary. You that's know. true. We can talk about any of his films and let people go search them out. They're they're all really really have their finger on the pulse of the middle class of America, and they're so charming and and yet very incisive. So. Totally agree. Unmarried woman. I have anyway, I have anyway. a one sheet of unmarried woman hanging up in my home, and it's. Hangs proudly uh, on display in my living room, so and it will be there as long as I'm here. So. Anyway.